0: Let's dive right in. I'm really excited about this series. Um, we're starting a new series today. It's going to take us from now till Lent. Um, and, uh, and really I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited about this entire year because we're going to kick off this kind of theme that I feel like God gave me, um, uh, a few months ago. We're calling core strengths. Core strength. We're going to spend some time focusing on the basics of our faith. Some of the things that, that make us um, believers. Oh good morning, O fam. I see you out there. I got you guys down here. I saw everybody jumping in. It's good to see all the names lining up. Um, miss you guys, the the ones that are normally here. Um, but it's good to see everybody out there. Um, anyway, we're gonna um, we're gonna be focused on core strength. I have no idea. I haven't looked ahead at all. I don't know how we're gonna pull core strength out of the Lint text. I don't know how we're gonna do it in our summer series, but I'm just excited to see what uh um, what God uh does at through this, what he what he shows us where he leads us this week. Um, and I'm really excited about this series because I feel like it's something we already stress a lot here at Open Table. And I'm gonna explain it this way. My three oldest sons are all in in really good shape. They um they get that from their father. Um, but they uh <laughs> but they're uh, they're all shaped very differently. Um and the way that uh that they stay in shape is equally uh diverse. Um, Elijah, my third son, is shaped like a bear. He's he's a big, blocky um, guy. And it's kind of weird because he's a naturally skinny kid. He was um, basically spent his entire childhood as a skeleton with skin. Um, he ate a ton, never gained a pound. And so he started lifting, like, really hard. He got into lifting in, in school, um, lifted really, really hard. When he graduated high school, he was a really strong skeleton with skin. And... Um, Still hadn't really gained any weight at all. And then his adult metabolism kind of caught up to him and he started putting on some weight and he really enjoyed the mass that he could put on. So he started powerlifting and he turned into a skeleton with skin that looked like it ate a bear. Um, and so it's funny, though, to hear him and Matthew, my second son, talk about working out because Matthew grew up a chubby kid who uh, in high school sprang up real tall and skinny. And now he works out more of a bodybuilding style, uh, he, he, uh, and they try to sell each other on the virtues of powerlifting versus bodybuilding, and Elijah will ask Matthew, what in the world good are biceps, there's like no power in biceps, who needs biceps, and uh, they're all pretty and no power, and Matthew's like, well, who needs to pick up a car, why am I picking up cars, like, that's what they make jacks for, who doesn't love a pretty bicep, like, why wouldn't I, what are we lifting for here, like, what are we doing? And uh, and so they'll argue back and forth about it. Uh, these two guys that are both in incredible shape um, think that their choice of lifting uh, or even their muscle group is the important one. And meanwhile, my first son, Josiah, who's leading worship tonight, works construction, also in very good shape. Listens to both of them and he asks, like, what sport are we trying out for here? Or what beach are we hanging out at? Like, I work every day. And the muscles I use at work are all in good shape. Like, I, why would I? why on earth do I need to work all these muscles I don't need every day? Like I, the ones I need get all the attention they need, and I and it works out great. And uh, I just work the muscles that naturally get worked in my daily routine. Why on earth am I going to, to work all these muscles I'm never ever going to use? And uh, what's the point? And while these guys are all arguing with each other, debating over the finer points of working out, standing, uh, usually in their mid twenties, they're all complaining about what hurts and what's aching, and you know, and what what's What's bugging them and what hurts today and what's what's ailing today. And my wife, who's a little bit older than them, um, is sitting over here in the corner shaking her head because she almost never complains about getting sore or having aches and pains or, or 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 any of that. And like I said, she's older than them. And here's why I think that is core strength. She focuses almost entirely on nutrition and core strength. She works out every day, works her core muscles, and she stays in great shape and moves around. And this, I think, is a ridiculously inept analogy of Christianity today. We have one camp over here who wants a bulky, heavy, super strong theology. Everything needs to be weighted down with complex compound sentences and Bible references every couple of statements, and they, they quote a lot of verses, and they study real deep and accurate teachings, and that's what's central and they, they, they question if you even face if you don't power faith. Like, that, when you hear them talk, it's like they, they barely recognize that, that you're even, you know, doing faith if it doesn't come with all that heavy stuff. And then there's the flashy beach faith camp who, who want something pretty to look at. Maybe a miracle one. If not a miracle, maybe in a really emotional worship service. They ask God what all that heavy theology is good for if it doesn't crash into the world like Elijah or the book of Acts. And if the blind aren't getting their sight, and the dead aren't raised. I mean, who doesn't love pretty Bible biceps, right? And they wonder if you even faith if you don't like beach faith. Isn't this fun? <laughs> and of course, there's a camp, maybe the most popular camp today, who mostly just want a day-to-day faith. Something that basically fits into their schedule. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you can stay in decent spiritual shape and barely know it's there. And this camp has a tendency to wonder what the other two camps get all worked up about because what on earthly good is all the drama or all the theology or all the emotional experiences if I have to pay my bills and feed my kids and do all the things? And so I don't really have time to faith unless it's a faith that I barely knows there. And of course I'm exaggerating the extremes of these ideas and there are more camps than this, but I personally think my wife figured out the magic of working out and maybe even theology that it's really important to have a deep and powerful core faith that is simple but rich and deep. A faith that doesn't show off or defend itself. It isn't susceptible to injury. It allows for movement but also holds you stable and upright. The kind of faith that requires something of you. I don't know if you've ever done a plank for very long. Core strength is hard. But also improves your day-to-day life it makes you feel more like you're actually supposed to be. And I've probably pushed this metaphor metaphor about as far as you can push it. But I think it illustrates what I hope to do with this series. We all think our way of doing faith is the best way. Right? We 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 uh, worse insulate ourselves and isolate ourselves from every other way of doing faith in Jesus because it's not our way. And I worry about that when we're doing a foundations teaching. Because what I really want to do for the next six or seven weeks is not apologetics. I'm not arming us to defend our faith. And I'm not really against apologetics. I just don't really think a posture of defense is the best posture to go out into the world with. We're supposed to be a faith that grows and invites and, and expands and advances. And so defense is the wrong posture to start with. Not to mention, the people we usually wind up arguing with when we do our apologetics aren't the non-believers who are seeking apologetic answers to their genuine questions. That's a real thing. like, And that's what apologetics is for. Those people who are like looking for, for real answers to the questions they're wrestling with. Apologetics is great for that. But usually what we wind up doing is fighting with other believers who just have their apologetics a little different than ours. Those are the people when we, when we sit there getting into this defense posture, we usually wind up picking on other believers. Which really bugs me because Jesus told us in these very clear words, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Your love for one another will prove to the world you're my disciples. And maybe it's just me, maybe you grew up in a different church than I did, but I don't think we've always done a very good job of this. Living out this verse. But here's the dilemma. We have a tendency to like either value theology and doctrine, which we should, and, and, and maybe because we're so into sound teaching, we almost can't help but separate ourselves from anyone who, that has bad teaching or teaching different than ours, which is a little bit of a trap because in order to do that, you have to assume you've got it perfectly right. The second you go, oh, I don't, they've got bad teaching. I don't hang out with people with bad teaching. Boy, you're assuming you don't have any bad teaching. and That's a spooky place to stand. But... Aside from that, we have a tendency to to value doctrine over unity, and and I can understand we're we're power faithers after all, right? Not bodybuilders. Or if we take serious the doctrine of unity, which is a doctrine, it's an actual, it's it's utterly and completely biblical to value unity in the body of Christ, because the Bible does command it. It feels like it 's impossible to also value doctrine because we, because we've got so many different doctrines that when we value unity, um, we tend to value doctrine. so the people that are like we can 't have unity because we value doctrine that's not actually true. Unity is a doctrine, so you're just saying my doctrine is more important than that doctrine, but doctrine is, is includes unity. but if you value unity, you can't help but wonder how far do I push that? Where does it stop like what right I mean if, if people uh, people in our country can believe all manner of crazy things, and if you, and if you don't have some form of doctrine, something to hold on to, especially growing up in like a Judeo-Christian culture where it's you know everybody can call everything Christian, um, it can be hard because like serious crazy can coexist with our theology, and we have to have a little guidance to sort that out, don't we? We have to have something, otherwise we turn out to be nothing, uh, and and have nothing to stand for. We're just a bunch of, you know, weirdos with nothing else to do on a Sunday morning than than come together and listen to me talk for, you know, 25 minutes or so. Uh, Whoa! (laughs) So what what I hope to do here is set up a fence. Like, uh, this is what it means to be a Christian. And though you don't have to believe those things to be part of Open Table Community Church, you probably should believe those things if you want to call yourself a Christian. That kind of a fence. We want to put up that fence. But we want to set that fence as wide as we possibly can so that we can call ourselves brothers and sisters with as many people as possible. Why on earth would we want to exclude anybody that calls on the name of the Lord if we don't have to? Amen? So our hopes um, are to define the essentials, but not with a heart of excluding people who don't have them, but rather with the heart of trying to include as many people as we possibly can within the bounds of orthodoxy. Now, here's my confession. Every single teacher who has ever taught a foundational teaching on Christianity would agree that that's what they're doing. Like, I didn't just say anything magical, what I just said. The the most learned Calvinist, the most word-of-faith-filled charismatic, the most social justice-justified Methodist, all of them would say they're just teaching the boundaries. and 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 they're just teaching what the... Is clearly taught in Scripture, and there, anybody that lays out that lays outside those boundaries would have to be included. So, what makes this different? What makes this unique to what we're doing? In fact, um, uh, what I'm seeking to do here, what makes it different than what everybody does? Um, and maybe it's not different, but, but let me say it this way: Where are we going to put the fence? That's the big question, because you know we could debate this all day long. And for me, that's the Apostles' Creed. We're putting the fence. There And before we talk about why I like the Apostles' Creed, kind of for the fence outlining the faith, um, because the Apostles' Creed is a pretty broad fence, and it will likely include some believers that some of us haven't always been comfortable including. But before we dive into why I like the fence that wide, I would like to say the the, the original fence was much wider. We're going to talk about that. Uh, so just for starters, a creed is a declaration. It's saying, this is what I believe. Um, we'll talk about what the word creed means at some point here in a bit. But um, but it's, it's it's what you basically need to say to be counted in the fence. I believe this. Um, but Paul wrote stuff like this. Um, if you openly declare Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So if there was something you had to say to Paul right there, just Jesus is Lord. And you're in because he can't look in your heart. He's going to assume what's going on in your heart. But what you say is Jesus is Lord. So I want you to know, no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ourselves, His servants. Therefore God elevated him to a place of highest honor, gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth uh, and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So it seems the original creed, if you want to call it that, the earliest creed was Jesus is Lord. Period. That was the earliest creed. Paul seemed comfortable with that in the beginning. That was enough. And I do have to say... um, that in that day, um, that was a little more loaded statement than it is today. All those passages. Paul was writing when the, writing, when the Roman imperial cult was in its prime. If you don't know what that is, when Caesar Augustus took over um, Rome at the death of Julius Caesar. If you guys remember, you're like uh, uh, high school Shakespeare. Um, when Julius Caesar was killed in the subsequent civil war, uh, there was, the Roman Empire was switching over from a, from a republic. It had been a republic for 500 years where they voted in their leaders. Uh, and right around the time of Jesus, it was switching over to an empire led by one emperor. Um, so no more democracy. And that was happening just before Jesus was born. And so that's a shaky time in any kingdom when you're switching from one government that's been there for 500 years to a brand new form of government. And one of the ways they kind of solidified the throne of the emperor was by declaring him a god. The, the emperor is a god. Like, you know, somebody saw him, you know, after his death. And, and the emperor, you know, is divine. And the emperor, this new god, this newly minted god emperor, has said that Tiberius is the new Caesar. Well, that really gave like, if you're like, yeah, I'd like to go back to voting, who's going to argue with a god? Like, the god said Tiberius. So it, it gave the throne, like... Uh, Importance to, to give it divinity, and so they were declaring Caesar a god. Um, and the other way they did that—sorry, Brett—I have no idea where I am in my notes. Um, uh, the the other the other way that they kind of solidified the throne in Rome <coughs> was you had to declare Caesar as lord to do anything in a public forum. To buy anything in an open market, you had to walk in Caesar is Lord, and then, then it was okay to sell anything. To stay at an inn or a hotel, you had to declare Caesar is Lord, um, and it was a way when you got your whole kingdom walking around going, oh, you know, Caesar is Lord, whatever." Um, it builds this kind of unity underneath the emperor, and so uh, what Paul is basically saying is, anyone who declares Jesus is Lord shall be saved. He he's inferring a lot in that statement. Anyone declaring Jesus is Lord is by implication refusing to say Caesar is Lord, um, which means you're sacrificing the ability to buy, to sell, to, to, to use anything in the open market, do any of that stuff. Um, so you're sacrificing a great deal to make that statement, to make that statement, Jesus is my Lord, not Caesar. Um, you're basically making yourself an outcast, and, and sacrificing a lot. And so Paul is literally basically saying, who on earth is going to say that if they're not a true believer? Who's going to sacrifice that much and give up that much if they're not a true believer? Anybody who says Jesus is Lord, you probably ought to count them in the camp because they're giving up a lot to say that. Now, so basically, um, the absolute earliest creed is Jesus is Lord. And it had some real teeth back then in its infancy. But fairly quickly, the church leaders recognized the need to kind of define things a little more, a little tighter um, and an early version of the Apostles' Creed started to come to be. Um, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we have several historical accounts at around 200 A.D. with it being used. And so we know it was already there by 200 A.D. We don't know exactly who wrote it or when, but it was being used as as a, a baptismal liturgy by 200. So they would they would say um, the three articles of faith. Back then you got dunked three times instead of one time. So you would go, do you believe in God the Father... Maker of heaven and earth. And say I do, and they would dunk them. They pull them up. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Dunk them. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church? And then they would dunk them. So they would, you would get dunked for each of the articles of the creed. We know that was happening by 200, so the creed had been there for a minute. Come 200, so uh, it's 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 at least that old. Um, and uh, and so we don't know who wrote it or when it came about, but we know that it was in regular use. By 200, the world um, has changed a lot since then. I don't know if you've noticed. Um, And this is why I think the creed is so important. The world has changed a ton in the past 2,000 years. The church has changed a ton in the past 2,000 years. Our access to scripture and, and the way we study it has changed a ton in the last 2,000 years. And every single one of those can greatly impact the conclusions you come to when you read the Bible. I mean, think about this. The earliest church, the, the book of Acts church was so compelled by the Jesus story that, that, that their natural reaction to it was to sell everything and, and give it to the church. And then they lived off that communal well. Uh, that way all the needy in the church would be made, make, make sure to be taken care of. And there was, and it says there was no needy among them. Now, can you imagine if, if I tried to sell that package today? If you came in here and I was like, okay, when you leave, I need you to go sell your stuff, and then also if you could have your paychecks direct deposited to the church, that'd be awesome. If you have a nice car, sell it, get a cheaper car, and please bring the proceeds, because um, that's just the most. How? What else could we do with this Jesus story? You know, I mean, can you imagine trying to sell that today? Like it doesn't, it doesn't translate to 2023. So for some reason, and this is where it gets weird, culture, time, access to scripture, whatever. Cause them to walk away with a natural response, just like what else would we do after reading the gospel and the Bible. And we come out with it with a different, just natural response. We would never come to that conclusion. And so it's really strange to think that somebody back there could, their natural response would be to sell everything in commune, and our natural response would be quite a bit different. So we obviously do not approach the Jesus story exactly the same way anymore. And it changes over time. But the, one of the most comforting things in the world to me, is this. When it comes to the fence, when it comes to what's important in Scripture, the kind of things that the early church fathers felt like new converts needed to believe before they could be baptized into the faith, the essentials, those have not changed. And within a hundred years of the people of Jesus, so these are people who knew people who knew Jesus that close. That soon, they came up with the essentials, and we haven't moved them in 2,000 years. That's a big deal. With everything that's changed in history, the way government's changed, the way everything, the way style's changed, if Paul walked in the doors of this church, he would not recognize it as a Christian church until we said, this is what we believe, and then he would. So it's kind of a big deal that we have this statement of faith that's 2,000 years old that says, when we read the Bible, this is what we think is important, and we agree with that. As much as everything in the entire world has changed, including almost everything about the church, the creeds are the same. And that's a really big deal. So when we say the Bible, because we don't just accept the creeds because the church has always accepted them. We accept them because we read the Bible and we come to the same conclusions. That's why we believe the creeds. Um, but, when we, when we, uh, but when we read the Bible and we uh, realize that the people that live that close to the apostles... And that close to the source documents, a lot of these guys writing this creed were reading Paul's handwriting. Like they were reading the original source document when they came up with this, which is cool. Um, some of those source documents um, were original. The fact that, that, that we can say with them, yep, we come to the same conclusions. We believe the same things um, is is why we need those. So that as much as we change, we don't change too much. That's why we like them. So since the days of the Apostles' Creed was written, and use as a baptismal liturgy. People have debated and tweaked and developed theology more and more and more. We've written new creeds, confessions, catechisms. We've come up with new definitions, doctrines, and dogmas. We've come up with all kinds of answers to all kinds of new questions. And all of that's a good thing. I'm by no means suggesting that the creeds are all there are to know. Like Within that fence, we can argue and debate and grow and believe this and believe that. There's so much you know, diversity inside that fence... That is important. I'm not even saying the Apostle Creed, you know, is all you need to know. You should know more than that. Like, we should study much, much deeper than that. But they serve as this anchor to ensure that through all of our growing and developing, we never get too far away from those original Bible students who are just like us trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. So, and a special note about that period of church history that's always really important to me one of the reasons the church didn't do deeper theology till the 3rd or 4th century was because it was illegal to be a christian till then and you didn't dare put all your church leaders in one place like cuz you know a few soldiers could come in and like wipe out your whole leadership so they kept the church leaders very very separate so it wasn't until they like lifted the the kind of open market slaughter of christians when constantine took over and made it legal to be a christian that they could get the church leaders together to debate for the very first time. They didn't do theology until they had the luxury to do it. Like until then it's like survival. And and so um so that means all the people who use the Apostles' Creed as their statement of faith, also thousands of them gave up their lives for Jesus. Like they believed that much that they were willing to be martyred for Jesus. And from my like comfortable American, super easy to be a Christian vantage point Never am I going to come up with a theology that's like, that's like yeah, but those guys didn't believe as much as they should have. No, those guys were willing to be like terribly murdered for their faith. Whatever they believed was good enough for me. Like that's a, you know, because I have it super easy. Nobody has ever threatened to fillet me for my faith. So, um, so no way am I going to get arrogant about what I believe and say that, you know, mine is more accurate than theirs because um, they paid the ultimate price. Lost again. Sorry, Brett. Um, so basically what we're going to do is to break down um, the Apostles' Creed uh, between now and Lent as a basic kind of jump start to our year of core strength. Um, so let's look at the Creed and then maybe um, talk about its structure a bit. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Don't trip over that word Catholic and it's not supposed to be um, capital. There, I just must have copied and pasted it from something. Um, in the Latin Catholic, the word Catholic means universal. Um, and so uh, the Catholic Church took their name from that word, not the other way around. We, so it was here before there was a Catholic Church. Um, so this just means I believe in the universal church, the whole church, the big church. Not necessarily like I believe in the Roman Catholic Church, um, although some Roman Catholics may extend it that far. Um uh, a lot of Protestants trip over that word a little bit. It just means I believe in the church, the, 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 the universal church. Um, so is everyone pretty familiar with the Apostles' Creed? Anybody not spent much time with it? Um, uh, our oldest records of the Apostles' Creed um, are in Latin, because that's what they spoke back then. Um, and the word credo, credo um, which is where we obviously get our word creed, means believe that's the that's one of the latin words for believe um, so when the apostles creed um, was not so much a creed as a baptismal liturgy the pastor would say credo in diem. do you believe in god um, and you know and uh so by the time they uh the creeds kind of became what we would call a creed that just meant i believe so they say i believe so or more accurately we believe this is what we believe now the apostles creed might sound like a, a a big list of things that it's important to believe. It's actually built around three credos. Uh, and this is what we want to start with. Three credos in this thing. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. So in the original language, it would say credo in diem. Um, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus His only Son our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The word credo shows up three times in the creed. I believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we recognize about the structure of the document is it's clearly Trinitarian. Um, from the very very beginning, uh, to believe in uh, to be a believer is to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, one of the first theological controversies in the church was over how to exactly define the Trinity, and I'm not even going to try. <laughs> so, um, if you came for that, wrong place. Um, but the very earliest church recognized, in whatever form, to be a Christian is to believe. In the Trinity. is to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Just to be baptized, you had to confess specific belief in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and though we don't have time to dig into um, uh, this in detail this week, the elements of faith that fall into each credo is kind of important. Um, this long list at the end, I believe in the, the Holy Spirit, the, the church, the all these things, all fall underneath the credo of what it means to believe in the Holy Spirit, which is kind of important. We'll dig into that later in the series. But here's the deal. The Apostles' Creed, as much as I clearly love it and I'm fascinated by the history and legacy and deep community that's there, um, the Creed is really just a bunch of words. The only reason the Creed means anything is that Latin word credo. Credo. To believe. I believe. Because the Latin language is a pretty full and diverse and detailed language And the creed could have started with a number of other words. Opinor. Opinor. I don't know how to say it. Anybody speak Latin? This Latin word means to think, to suppose, to believe, to imagine, to conjecture. Where we get our word opinion. It could have started that way. I, I imagine. I believe. You know, I, I, I think. I conjecture. Could have started with "puto" to believe, to to think, to suppose, to consider. It can also mean to prune or to clear, as in to clear away all the junk and boil something down to its, its essentials. That seems like it would have been a great way to start the creed. That's not how it started. Could have been "spiro" to hope, to expect, to suppose, to look for, to anticipate. To believe, but no. Or maybe a, a, a tomo automo, I don't know. To assert, to suppose, to believe, to allege. The Latin, Latin language had plenty of words, but no. Or a credo, where we get the word a credit or account, or it, it means to, to add up or to account or to believe. All these are variations on the word believe were available to the writers of the Apostles' Creed when they were asking people to believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so that they could baptize them. They didn't use any of them. Instead, they chose this, credo, to believe, to trust, to confide in, to rely on, to have confidence in, to depend on. That's a much different definition. And this is the main point that I want to make this morning. All of these can be accomplished with apologetics. I can give you reasons and proofs and arguments about why you should believe and, and, and any and all of these work there. And there's tons of them. That's honestly a really fun conversation. I love that. But that's not what the word creed is about. This is something you do by the grace of God. And when you do, it transforms you. When you trust the Father, it changes the way you approach the world. When you rely on the Son for your very life, you simply cannot be the same. When you have confidence in and depend on the Holy Spirit every single day, you should not be able to walk out of the room the same way. It should change your life. In other words, real faith, real belief, real credo should be transformative. It should change you. So when the church leaders of 200 AD or whatever before that were baptizing new believers, that's what they were asking. They weren't asking if you agree with them. They weren't asking if you've added it up and and this is what you think and this is what you hope and this is what you account. They were asking, has the Father transformed your life? Are you being changed daily by the Son? Is there, is your life different because you now walk daily with the Holy Spirit in it? The word credo is not an accident. And I started with this introductory week to wade through some of the nerd work mostly because the, the last thing I would want to do is for us to study, study the Apostles' Creed and come here each week for a checklist. And say, yes, I do these, I do believe these things, I agree with these things, I, I, I acknowledge these things. The same way I acknowledge two plus two is four or that gravity makes things fall to the earth even though I can't see it. Yes, I, I, I believe that way. That's the last thing I want to do. Please don't treat the creed like a list and you can just come and agree with it and that's all that there is to do with the creed to be a Christian. The creed is a statement of commitment. Commitment to put yourselves in the hands of the triune God and honestly surrender yourself. Your dreams, your plans, your ways of seeing the world, your grip on how you think things should turn out. That's usually the hardest one. But to say you credo is to fully give your life to God. Sometimes people aren't satisfied with the Apostles' Creed because it's too broad in its definitions of some of the elements of faith. And they believe that you need to be way more specific in what you're saying when you say you believe. When I hear those arguments... I wonder if maybe we're putting the stress in the wrong place. Because if you're more interested in the fine details of the list of things you're supposed to believe, rather than the deep level of commitment that is required in the word credo, I'm not sure if you're really mentally ready for the Apostles' Creed in the first place. Or the Nicene Creed, or the Chalcedonian Creed, or the Augsburg Confession, Westminster Confession, Pledge of Allegiance, Pythagorean Theorem, whatever. Without commitment, it's just information. Good information, true information, maybe the best confession in the world, but it's nothing if that's just knowledge until you give yourself to that confession. So the point of this series is not to figure out what we believe as a list, but to give ourselves fully to him in whom we believe. Amen? So how do we respond to this? The the English word believe is troublesome. We seem to talk about uh, these types of semantics a lot in here. Um, But we use the same word believe to say, I believe George Washington was our country's first president. And I believe in Jesus. And it's way too easy to think that the latter is basically the same as the former. And I think the problem lies in the tense of the word and our belief in the resurrection. Let me explain. In my example of asking um, if you believe Jesus Christ was who the history books say He was, and do you believe Jesus is who the Bible says He is, those only get mixed up because we tend to use them in the past tense. George Washington was, Jesus was. Like we use them in the past tense. But faith in Jesus isn't a faith in the Jesus who was. Because of the resurrection, we believe in the Jesus who is, not was. Which means a better example of the word faith would be for me to say, I believe in you. If we're in a tough spot and I look you in your eyes I say, you got this, I believe in you. No part of you would go, you believe that I exist in this space and time. And that this is my name? No. You would, you would immediately see the deeper meaning of the word belief. I believe in you. Because we're both in the present, we're both here together. So you, you know what I mean when I say belief. I, see when we, I think when we stop thinking of Jesus as a historical figure who lived in the past, and we embrace him as an ever present living Savior who lives with us right now, we can start to see belief shift to what it's supposed to mean. I believe in you, what it was intended to be. Then belief, faith starts to change. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 and into the beginning of chapter 12 is trying to draw out that very reality. Faith shows us the reality of things we hope for. It's the evidence of things we can't see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And then the author goes on to tell about all kinds of people who believe God the way they believe. Not the way they believe that Nebraska is north of Kansas. Not that kind of belief. The author of Hebrews highlights a whole group of people who believed and because they believed or credoed because they were committed to that belief, it completely changed their lives. Listen to this. By faith, Noah built a large boat to save his family from a flood. He obeyed God warned him about things that had never happened before. No, it's going to rain. What's rain? Trust me, you're going to want to build a boat. Who goes? Let me get some wood. Like, that's faith. That's credo. That's not, you know, God said it's going to rain, so, you know, yeah, I believe it's going to rain. Whatever. No, it's like, how do I, so, so what do I change? What do I do? How do I live in light of that? By faith, Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave his home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. That's credo. It was by faith Abraham offered up Isaac as a sacrifice when God tested him. It was by faith Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born and saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith Moses when he grew up um, refused to call himself the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt not fearing the king's anger he kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God for she had given uh, she had given a friendly welcome, to the spies. It was by faith people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched flames of fire, they escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in the battle and put on armors. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. Um, some of them were tortured, refusing to turn from God to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after resurrection. They were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Isn't this getting fun? Other, others were chained in prison. They died by stoning. They were sawn in half. Others were killed by the sword. Some were uh, went about wearing ski, uh, sheep skins of sheep and goats, destitute, oppression, mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering the deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation by their faith. And yet none of them received what God had promised in their time. The writer of Hebrews was going on to say that in Jesus it's all fulfilled. That is credo. And does any part of that sound like, I believe, Jesus, George Washington was the first president of the United States of America? <laughs> no. That's a whole different kind of faith. But that's what it means to believe the way that, that, that the creed says. There's a lot of words for belief like George Washington. Plenty of words for that in Latin. And the writers of the Creed didn't choose any of them. They chose the kind of uh, belief that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. The kind that can wreck your life. (laughs) In a good way. So the way I would love to respond to this message before we focus on what we believe is to wrestle with the question, do I believe? Do I credo? believe am i am i ready for god to transform my life am i ready to be turned outside inside out if needed am i ready to follow where he leads me am i ready to take life on his terms even if i don't like where that leads me all the time or i don't understand what's happening at all those are not throwaway questions because i promise you giving your life fully to jesus is the wisest most fulfilling thing you could ever do that list in hebrews 11 is no joke God can and will ask you to do crazy things. And Jesus himself said that, that we need to count the cost before we jump on board. So as we gather around the table this morning as we, we experience what all in looks like. Because that's what this table is. That's what all in looks like. Jesus said, you want to follow my example? Here's my body, broken for you. Here's my blood, poured out for you. That's what it means to be all in. So to gather around a table around this symbol of of what it means to credo maybe do some business with Jesus and ask yourself am i ready to believe